podcast world what's up chad belding back at you another episode of this life ain't for everybody today's episode is brought to you by our friends in nashville tennessee music city america whiskey jam check them out all the up and coming artists the singers the songwriters people that you see on stage right now thomas rhett drake white john party they are all alumni of whiskey jam so check those guys out at Winter's Bar every Monday night. They have satellite events going on in Vegas, Chicago, Louisville, Kentucky, all over the country. Whiskey Jam, thank you guys so much. Look at them at whiskeyjam.com. Get some of their merch. They have great hats, great shirts, great hoodies. They are into it, and they support country music and the arts like no other. Today's episode is also brought to you by our friends at Nutrient Ag Solutions. For all of your farming needs, from planting to harvest, pesticides, everything in between, it's soon-to-be food plotting for ducks, soon-to-be food plotting for deer we are going to do big things with nutrient ag solutions the way they support the american farmer the farmers around the world canada australia south america they are the largest supplement supplier for farmers in the world nutrient ag solutions we are proud to be partnered with them and working on initiatives that are going to provide nutrition and food for mallard ducks, Canada geese, speckle belly geese, up and down the migratory routes. Nutrient Ag Solutions, thank you so much for what you do for America's farmers. And today we are back with Mr. Brian Moore, part four of his saga, his story. What a story it is from meeting his wife in Korea, Rachel Moore, who is also a United States Air Force fighter pilot. Brian has done so many missions, tours of duty in Iraq. He has been all over the world in his F-16. He is currently an instructor at the Fallon Naval Air base in Fallon, Nevada. What I wanted to get in today is just kind of bring to an end, Brian, where we were with what in your military career and then what you're doing currently, because I have a lot of interest in what you and Rachel are doing currently as well. And I'm sure a lot of people that travel a lot will. So how are you, buddy? Good, good, good. Great to be here. Thank you. Are you, uh, have you been listening to any of the episodes yet? Yeah. You know, the, the big thing is you don't want to sound like a bumbling idiot. And, uh, no, it's been, it's been great. You know, I've been getting a lot of positive feedback, you know, when the, uh, your brother-in-law says it sounded pretty good and didn't, uh, he kept his, uh, you know, his uh, spurious comments to a minimum. So I thought it was at least impressed him a little bit. Did he have any negative negative at all? No, he said he liked it. So it's great. You know, and Rachel had been uh, critiquing. So you got your two biggest critics. Uh, as long as they have positive feedback, you're doing pretty well in life. Right. And then uh, <laughs> last week you talked to me a little bit about what happened last week, Tom, and we met Abe. Yeah. And uh, I, I regret having to get on the road. My trip got turned into seven days instead of four. So I had to, I had to call you and say, Hey, can we, yeah, reschedule. But Tom was able to get out there. Tell what does Abe do, and what is his what is his experience and history in the military, and what 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 took place last week? Yeah, so Abe is uh, our uh, public affairs liaison for the squadron. Um, he's a, a career uh, F eighteen Hornet pilot. So he started. Uh, he was a um, basically an ROTC guy, so the Reserve Officer Training Corps. Uh, then went into the Navy right after that, and uh, he's been uh, mostly an East Coast guy. So he's an East Coast guy, and because uh, basically the Navy. Navy divides their fighters into East Coast and West Coast. You know, there's really two big fighter bases, one in Norfolk, uh, uh, what is it, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and the other one's in Lemoore, California, where basically the lion's share of the naval fighters are operating out of. So it was an East Coast guy. And, uh, 
you know, so he's now with the squadron. He uh, just switched over to uh, the reserves um, and he was the liaison. So he's the one that keeps me, you know, I'm not always as smart as I should be or I could be, you know, on the latest procedures with the, the public affairs stuff. So that's why you always call um, one of those guys to come out and uh, make sure that you're not getting the squadron or getting anybody into any trouble or, you know, little things um, that we should consider. Uh, so I called him uh, and then we took uh, took every took Tom out there, showed him the base and then uh, went out to uh, showed him the squadron a little bit. You know, unfortunately, our simulator was down for upgrades. Um, so we weren't able to get him in a simulator, which would have been fun. But he got to see, um, you know, some uh, some. Uh, you know, training missions that were going out. There was a couple of Top Gun missions that, that were going out. There was uh, some stuff that we were supporting. One was Top Gun. One was um, another uh, training event for uh, various squadrons that always come through Fallon uh, when they need uh, advanced training. So he also did a photo shoot too. Huh? Was he was he pretty legit with the camera? Yeah, you know, he's, he, he was wielding it like a champ. I mean, he wasn't, uh, you know, like Uncle Paul with, uh, you know, the flash photography and uh, six cameras strapped to his neck. But, uh, yeah, he seemed to know what he was doing. <laughs> I saw some of the stuff he got. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, it was... Uh, uh, and you, the nice thing is because, you know, like, uh, and even Tom was saying uh, about it, like you just get so desensitized, you know, after 16 years, 17 years, you know, seeing that it's, it's just second nature to me. But then when you see someone that doesn't get to see that all the time, like you kind of feed off their energy, like, you know, almost like a, a kid in a candy factory a little bit. You're like, you can't help but get, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, man, this is pretty cool what we do. And, and you know, to, to somebody that doesn't see it all the time, because you just you just get desensitized when you hang out with guys, when you're you kind of in the life and, um you know, you know, a lot of the newness and the awe has, has worn off. You're now, you know, in, at the microscopic level of what you need to do for the next mission and this, that, and the other, and the, the, the broad scope of the, uh, of what you're doing and how, um, that could be perceived as really cool to somebody else, you know, that kind of wears off on you. So it was good. It's always good to see that always, you know, relights the fire in you. And living this close to that base, you know, it's been there forever. The The Fallon Naval Air Force Base has been there. The Top Gun Academy has been there. What is going on out there? Just is, you know, we sit here and we're probably 70 miles away, not as a crow flies, but if you had to drive there, what what's going on every day? I know you've, you've, you've talked about this a little bit, but just recap a little bit what you're doing there and what are today's fighter pilots experiencing right now or trying to achieve right now 65 miles from where we sit well you know the the big thing is you know the history of the base over at fallon was it was actually constructed in world war ii um and it was like an auxiliary field that they use for training um uh, places where they could go out and do some bomb dropping and, and things of that nature away from the public um where there was just vast expanses a lot of dry lake beds out in the airspace that they own so they could go out there practice their bombing missions and not be a danger to any civilian population air traffic or anything like that well, through the time, the base has continually expanded as the capabilities and the uh, the size of the naval air wing uh, has has increased or, or fluctuated. Um, as everyone you know realizes, most people do. And in nineteen in the eighties, you know, the Top Gun Weapon School was actually down at Miramar, California. Um, after about uh, the mid nineties, they they had a BRAC, which is called a base uh, realignment enclosures. Essentially, what they did is they take uh, you know they look at all the military bases and and making and they're making sure that you know the uh, taxpayers' dollars are, are being uh, metered out as efficiently as possible. So what they determined based on you know San Diego growing up, the airspace challenges that they had, and and they were continually losing airspace. They were continually getting noise complaints because these jets are loud. Um, so it was starting to negatively impact the training. So they made the move to um, 
uh, moved Top Gun away from Miramar and they brought it up to Fallon, where we have uh, much better airspace, much better ranges, um, and you know the ability, a lot less noise complaints. You know, so it keeps uh, the the general public happy with us. Um, and so that's essentially what it's in. So it's been, and I don't know the exact year. Somebody's probably going to give me crap about that, but it was in the nineties when it, you know, they started doing that migratory, um, um, uh, plans, moving the squadrons up there, getting the school and the facilities all, uh, all stood up there. So right now for the foreseeable future, Top Gun's going to remain at Fallon because our airspace is good. They're posturing, um, to possibly get a little bit more airspace. Um, just because as the new jets, new weapon systems come out, you know, the airspace that we thought was going to be plenty big for a lot of years to come is now getting smaller and smaller as far as, you know, capabilities, detection capabilities, um, strike capabilities of our aircraft. So the way Hollywood made it look in the movie titled Top Gun back in the 80s, 87, 88, 86, whatever, is that what's going on in Fallon? Is that, is it training to that? The, they're going up and, and doing missions like that and you have instruction going on as our, our fighter pilots of tomorrow are training right now or is it like a is it kind of where guys that have been in 20 years come back for some uh, so, some so bottom line stuff? yeah what the uh fighter weapon school is uh at fallon is essentially um is they take um uh instructor candidates and they run them through the most experienced and uh or run them through a syllabus with the most experienced um instructors that the navy has the guys that have been you know handpicked um based on their you know performance uh their their knowledge level so these are kind of the cream of the crop guys that get picked to be instructors at the school obviously they've gone through the course uh and those are the guys that are now instructing the um the new guys coming through and these guys are going to go through. They're going to get instruction on how to, you know, how to how to be better instructors. Um, they're going to have, you know, more dedicated rides to them to really explore the performance envelope of the aircraft. And then at the end of the day, they're going to take that knowledge and go back to their respective fleet squadrons, and and in the hopes um, that they're going to um, they're going to raise the, raise the knowledge level of their entire squadron. And the and the courses are constantly going through. There's refresher courses going through and everything like that. And the main, th- uh, the main reason for that is because the, the environment is constantly changing, you know, weapons capabilities, um, uh, all kinds of capabilities are constantly evolving. So just because you went through a class, you know, 10 years ago, doesn't mean your knowledge is still necessarily current. There's probably a lot that is still current as far as, you know, basics, aerodynamics, things of that nature. But as far as, you know, your, your knowledge of our weapon systems and threat aircraft, that has to be refreshed from time to time. So those are constantly going on and it's, you know, the classes are constantly rolling, uh, going through about every four, uh, like on a, about an every four month time cycle. And what recap real quick, what you're, you're jumping in a, a jet, a MIG that would have, would have been the MIG in Top Gun, and you're instructing. So, bottom line, I'm I'm part of the uh, the adversary squadron that's there. So, the Top Gun has their own instructors, their own aircraft. So, the adversary squadron, what we do, we provide red air. Um, some of the instru- some of the guys that we have, uh, uh, Top Gun cra- uh, course graduates, will um, provide some instruction and 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 provide uh, service assets for the uh, Top Gun um, syllabus. And, but what we mostly provide is, uh, at a Fallon is we are now the, um, we simulate the bandits or the, um, threat nation aircraft during large force, um, exercise. That's the reds. Yeah. The reds essentially. So what happens is it's basically what we're trying to do is simulate the first several days of combat against a threat nation. So large forces of, uh, blue players, that would be us Navy fighters, uh, versus large forces of enemy fighters, which we, uh, which we, 
um, simulate. We have three aircraft that we use to simulate. We use uh, older F, uh, older and newer F-18Cs, Es, and Fs that we use to simulate some of our um, high-end threat nation aircraft, generally Sukhois, MiGs, things of that nature. We also have F-16 aircraft um, that were um, that the Navy uses, and we use those to simulate, you know, MiG-29s and some other high fast flying type aircraft. And then we use our, the F-5s which, uh, that we have, which simulate some of the, tr uh, the striker aircraft, the, the lower MiG-21s, MiG-23s, J-7s, you know, those type of threat, uh, threat nation aircrafts. And between all three, you're gonna get a very robust and accurate picture of what the first day of an aerial, uh, of an aerial war campaign will look like. Aerial war campaign, meaning, jet on jet because what we've talked about so far is ground support quite a bit mm -hmm. a lot of missions are you're in the air you're supporting a ground mission on the ground mission with airstrikes mm -hmm. readily available to them if they need it mm -hmm. but you're saying that it's it's pretty common in war today or let's say the last 15 years of, of the, the in theater that's going on is there a lot of jet on jet aircraft no combat? so you know you got to look at the the genesis of an aerial campaign you know, day one is going to be drastically different than day 1500, you know, so day one of a war, what's going to happen? Well, the, the, the threat nation is going to have all of its toys to bear. It's going to have an integrated air defense system. It's going to have surface air missiles. It's going to have, um, you know, fighter aircraft It's going to have strike aircraft. It's going to bring every weapon system that it has to bear to defend its, its borders. Well, after, you know, so the first couple of days of the war, you're going to be going against the best that that country can throw at you. And over time, either you slowly start to attrite um, the defenses, i.e. you take down their integrated air defense systems, you start attriting their fighters, um, and eventually you just kind of whittle down um, their ability to wage war to a point to now where you get to an area where um, what you see in a lot of the missions that we were doing uh, over in Iraq in the Air Force, which is now there is no, there is no valid air-to-air -air threat. You know, we've eliminated all that and now it's considered, uh, it would be considered now we, you know, we switch our hats to the air to ground support missions. You're not going to send ground troops in unless you've established air dominance. So that's where I was going to go. So you're saying day one and it, before they, any, you know, let's say they get beat up a little bit or they yeah. lose a bunch of their, yeah. their, their equipment, they lose a bunch of their reg regime. You're saying that they got everything they're ready to yeah. roll. So yeah, now you start, you start, you know, putting holes in some of this. Yeah. And the, the idea though, of the, the airstrikes and mm -hmm. in the beginning, there is more, there is more of a chance to be jet on jet oh, to absolutely. where you're sending missiles after another jet. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what guys are in that position who are, is that the cream of the crop from top gun that are going to be called out to be that, that day one fighter, any frontline combat unit. So every unit has to, um, report to the higher ups, the chain of command and uh, ultimately Congress, hey, you know, they call it mission capable, which, okay, so each squadron is gonna have, okay, you are a Hornet squadron. That means you are proficient in air-to-air -air, uh, combat and tactics and air-to-ground combat and tactics, and maybe some special skill sets depending on the unit. So if you are combat or if you are capable and current, then you know you have to report that up if for some reason based on staffing equipment or whatever if you are non-combat capable you have to report that you know to the uh, higher uh, the chains of command which can now allocate some resources to get that unit combat capable so bottom line is it's a status that you have to maintain as a squadron your combat capability it means you have the equipment you have the training you have the people and the, and the proficiency to go day one 
and wage war? Yeah, let's let's just start with the beginning of Iraq and then move into current uh, where we're at currently with Iraq and then Afghanistan and everything that's taken place since probably what 1994. Well, I mean, you look at there was two. So, you know, so going back to what you're saying is, you know, in the first Gulf War, Gulf War one, um, you know, Operation Shock and Awe. Um, it's actually pretty interesting because you'll sit there and they had four deployed units when they when when we always call it when the balloon goes up is essentially it's an old combat term, which means it's an old army term that has been pretty much adopted worldwide. So what happens before you begin any aerial bombardment or any artillery bombardment, you send up a balloon and then you map where the balloon blows so you know where the winds are at altitude and that's an old artillery officer's job was to send the balloon up so when when they say hey when the balloon goes up means hey stuff's you know hell's getting ready to rain down on you basically so in the first in the first area war of iraq one they got all the fighters when they when they got the go they were expecting on the blue forces the u.s was expecting to lose 70 percent of its planes that it sent up there on day one what year was this? It was, uh, what was it, 92? Okay, so I was two years late. So you're saying that they thought they were going to lose 70% of the jets that were going Only up. one out of every three would come back. Meaning that all those fighter pilots were going to be dead. Or captured. Or having to evade and aggress their way back to them. So, when so the they numbers- launched knowing that they were going to, that they were, they were expecting, or it was projected that they had the potential to lose two out of every three. So is that good military warfare tactic to know that you're going to lose 70% of your million dollar equipment? And then, I mean, millions and millions of dollars gone, which that's way less important than the human life factor in this. So is that good tactic to know that you're going to lose 70% and still launch? Well, depending on, I mean, dude, it's battle, it's combat. You're going to have losses. But you're, but you're but saying at, from the but, beginning you're going to lose 70%. That almost seems like, well, why don't we wait until we can get that number a little bit better? Is timing of the essence right now? Mm, well, it, that could, uh, uh, you know, the amount of stuff that was, you know, decisions, obviously everyone's pining over it. And the, the uh, you know, the higher-ups, the generals, the admirals, all the guys that are coming up with these battle plans is they're weighing everything. And, you know, ultimately there is a human price. And these guys are all former combat pilots. Um, you know, artillery officers, tank officer, and then, you know, these guys have risen through the ranks going through, um, you know, cutting their teeth in combat. So they know what to, to, uh, what's at stake and, you know, and they, there's going to be some fallout with every one of the decisions that you make. So there, I can't, and I can't imagine they're not decisions that these guys are taking lightly, but at the end of the day, you know, the amount of destruction that you're able to bring, to bring probably might warrant the loss of two out of every three aircraft. So how many did we lose? Do you know that? Number? I don't know, but it was, uh, it was frighteningly less than what they expected. Frighteningly less, meaning that it was way, way, way less. less. So I, that was probably poorly choice words. So when we came back, I, I don't think we lost hardly anything. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was by far, it was, it was, you know, maybe, maybe five or 10 aircraft. Do you have a number off the top of your head that you could tell me how many fighter pilots have been captured or killed or jets have gone down since then current all the way up in until enemy. 2019? Yeah. And enemy strikes. I know that some like the guy that we talked about that was your friend, mm-hmm. some training missions, you know, training missions, lives. you know, they have been, we've lost guys in combat, um, basically due to, uh, a lot of times, um, more times than not, they, the, the fighter, the combat losses that we've had are based on, you know, um, channelized attention. You know, guys are so many things going on. They might lose a piece of information, i.e. their airspeed or their altitude. We've had a lot of um, what we call um, 
uh, CFIT, which is control flight into terrain. So a guy's very um, so focused on helping these ground troops that he forgets when he rolls in on a, on a dive pass, his uh, speed is might be a little low. And maybe they're not able to pull up in time. I mean, there's a lot of things that have happened. Those are a vast majority. There, I know there was um, you know, uh, a Navy uh, pilot that was shot down by an Iraqi uh, MiG-25 that had launched. Um, there was a couple air-to-air uh, um, losses, not many. Um, I actually had the, uh, the pleasure of meeting the first guy shot down and captured in Iraq War One, who was actually a British helo pilot, was uh, shot down and captured by the Iraqis. And he's a, he's a great dude. He's a, he's a good dude to spend a, um, spend a night. You know, you think you have stories and then you sit down with a couple pints of whiskey and talk to this guy. And you're so like, paint that picture for me. You're in the air, you get hit by a missile, you eject, you're in your chute and mm-hmm. those guys are tracking your chute. And as soon as you hit the ground, they have somebody there waiting to kidnap you. Well, not necessarily kidnap, but capture. Because the the first thing okay captures the first thing they want to do is they want to field interrogate you to see you know get as much information as they can out of you as quickly as possible. Then after that they'll they'll probably transfer you somewhere for follow on interrogation and stuff like that. So you know where you're getting into weird stuff is you know you know back in the day and you know World War Two. Uh, World War One, Korea, the formal declarations of war, you, you knew what to expect. If the Germans captured you, there was a code of conduct that they were um, required to maintain with their prisoners of war, just like if we captured German troops and uh, or Chinese troops, or, or, or not Chinese troops, but uh, uh, Japanese troops in World War Two. So there was an accepted... Um, uh, level of or uh, uh, accepted level of handling with the prisoners, what they called prisoners of war. Um, now, when we were going into this, we're not a hundred percent sure if the you know if the Iraqis were going to adhere to that. Um, I'm sure there were some outliers, and you know, from what I understand, with a lot of the pilots, they largely held up to you know the Geneva Convention and everything like that, which outlined the the rules and procedures of um, the carriage of. Uh, uh, prisoners of war. And I can only say with the few pilots that I've met and the, the stories I've been briefed on, you know, and, and they largely did. I don't know that I'm sure there's some outliers and I'm sure there's some stories, both positive and negative of them not adhering to that. So I, I can't, you know, I really can't explain or I can't uh, speak with any area of, uh, of certainty, you know, um, but from what I've, the people that I've talked to and a couple of people I met, largely the Iraqis held up they're into the bargain. You know, there's a lot of threats, a lot of posturing, a lot of mental games that they're playing, you know, probably, you know, some of the guys are putting pistols to their heads, cocking them and pulling the trigger that, but they weren't loaded, you know? So all that stuff, you know, at the end of the day, they, a lot of the guys, all the guys, uh, or for the most part, I think a uh, majority of the, of uh, the pilots that were captured were eventually returned. Returned. So is there a number? Do you have a number? Do you think I we've don't. lost a lot of fighter pilots since 2000 or since 1992? You know, um, is it in the hundreds or is it in the teens or I, I can't tell it's not, I, it's not in the hundreds. Um, you know, there's always, you know, combat an- uh, accidents or training accidents are the vast majority as far as combat, uh, losses. It, it's few. Um, uh, I don't know the exact answers, but it's vast, more, vast majority are, are lost in, um, training accidents, proficiency. And, you know, cause like most things you're going to train like you fight. So we try to make the training missions as stressful as we can, you know, as realistic as we can. And in some kind, in some cases we try to make them as, as much as we can, a little bit more hard, you know, a little bit more difficult than they would be in combat. So by the time you get to combat, you know, it, it's almost going to be seem like second nature. In, in any time in combat, do you ever see a fighter battalion, a fighter jet battalion? Do you ever see them 
looking like the Blue Angels would look kind of in those synchronized deals? Do you guys get in those positions when you're in battle or are you guys all single or how does it look most of the time? Most of the time it's, you know, it's a, uh, you know, there's an old saying, you know, even the, the best laid out plans never f- survive first contact with the enemy. So, you know, that I think that's a, um, a truism throughout everything, you know, whether, Hey, you know, the army guys, they start, you know, the you know, thing, look back to world war two with the paratroopers. Hey man, this is where we're going to put all our guys. You're going to clump up. You're going to hit your targets, wait for the big army to come in. They'll fill you, they'll backfill you. And then we'll press to the next target. Well, what happened? Planes got scattered to the wind. Troops got scattered to the winds. The winds were stronger than they expected. Planes didn't, you know, because of the weather couldn't find their drop point. So, I mean, what happened? Everything just got, um, you know, as I could say, foobard. You know, so everything was all messed up and you, but you still have a mission accomplished. So now you're, you know, now you're, you're playing a pickup game. A lot of that holds true in combat, you know, um, having jets close together, like the blue angels, that's not tactically sound. Uh, it looks great for an air show, which is in those guys are all very skilled pilots, but you got to look at it this way. They're, they're not doing combat. They're doing an air show. So how close will jets get in combat? What's the closest they'll get? Cause it seems to me like those things are maybe 10 feet from wingtip to wingtip. I don't know exactly how typically, close they get. typically they're about there. They can be three or less, three feet or yeah. less. Mm-hmm. If you're doing those parade formations and stuff like that, they call a finger, they're called I mean, fingertip in the air. How perfect do you have to be not to just tap somebody and, and send them down? Well, you know, it's, once again, it's like anything else. You train to it, you, you know, it, it's, um, um, you're current, you know, and you're proficient at what you're doing it. Yeah, it's not, you don't take a guy off the street and say, all right, man, fly three. But is there the really a reason to get a jet that's going that fast, that close to another jet going that fast, just to impress a bunch of kids and women at, a, at an air show? Absolutely. Really? It's a, it's a recruiting. I mean, because it is, it, it does showcase the skill set of um, isn't it dangerous as shit though to be that close with doing those kind of tricks well absolutely there's there's some inherent danger but there's also with the danger comes the cool factor if they didn't want to have any losses or anything like that we could get dudes in and basically you know we could go like the shriners we could paint the shriner some shriner cars up like blue angels and say hey man isn't that cool not really (laughs) but you're talking you're talking 36 inches that's not i mean isn't 10 feet close enough well, it, you know, for those formations, you know, and, and the funny thing is like these fingertip formations, they were actually derived in combat. They're typical formations that you use for a takeoff and a landing or if a plane is having problems, you know. So, you know, let's say a, a plane's having some navigational issues and, you know, the 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 pilot that's in this damaged or malfunctioning aircraft, all he can do is just maintain what limited control the aircraft he has you you have another guy join on him and, and it's basically leading him back to base so personally what's the closest you have flown to another jet going in your f-16 three feet three feet yeah yeah every 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 fighter pilot can do knows you know at least a two ship they call them the fingertip of the parade formations now when you start getting into the the blue angels in particular where they're doing it with four six and plus aircraft. I mean, those are for parade formations. I've only been in a tight formation, a diamond formation that they would do a couple handful of times in the air force and in the Navy when you're about three to six feet away from four other or three other aircraft. Wow. So that transitions me into what you do today. See, it's gotta be boring as hell to you. As far as the airlines and stuff, it's a, uh, <laughs> I talked to Rachel about that and I'm like, that's like going from Mario Andretti in an Indy car to driving a dump truck at four miles an hour. Even though there's a lot of responsibility in dump truck driving, I'm yeah. not saying that, yeah. but you're going four miles an hour, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you have to, 
I think uh, Saturday Night Live probably did the best skit on it. Um, and it's if you can look it up, I don't know where you could find it or if it's trademarked or whatever. But I remember watching it. And it was a skit that they did, and it was called uh, Iceman: The Later Years. <laughs> and it had Iceman as an airline pilot where he couldn't let go, you know. And there's three other pilots in the cockpit with him, and they're just they're like. It, it's ac- absolutely hilarious. Who's playing? Is it Tom? Is it Tom Cruise host Saturday Night Live? No, it was uh, Val Kilmer. He oh, was Val actually Kilmer playing. Was playing he was playing Iceman, Ice Man, and it was Iceman the later years as Iceman as an airline pilot, and it was it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Like I gotta look it up. Yeah, you I'm, gotta look it I'm up. I'm taking a note right it, now. It's pretty funny. Um, so you have to shift your mentality. You know, thankfully, obviously, tactical aviation is a drug that uh, you can't just quit cold Turkey. Hence why, you know, I'm, I'm trying to wean myself off of it as you, uh, as you grow up. And, but, uh, you know, the nice thing is, you know, my body's still able, I haven't had any lasting injuries, um, or, or debilitating injuries that keep me from doing it. So I'm going to do it till either the, the military says, we don't want you to do it anymore until, or until my body says, Hey man, you can't do this anymore. Um, so, but think about what you went from, Wyoming fly on these passenger jets. Mm-hmm. People listen to part one of our podcast. Yeah. You're flying, you're almost getting to the point to where you're going to take up 19 passengers before that airline gets shut down and nine 11 occurs and you and your brother decide to go into the military. Yeah. And now you revert back after a 16, 17, 18 year military career with several hundred missions with the tours of duty in an F 16 fighter jet for both the Navy and the air force. And now you're back in a, in a, in a seven thirty seven Boeing mm-hmm. flying for Amer- American, American airlines. Mm-hmm. And you're walking down that jetway and you're, saying, excuse me, I'm coming down the left and you're getting on the plane and you got all these passengers going to Nashville or wherever you're going, there's a huge responsibility. Yeah. But can you do this with your eyes closed or is it, I want to get into this yeah, commercial it, travel know, it, now. It, the commercial, I mean, it's, it's just different, you know, so the planes are different, you know, uh, a lot more systems on the commercial aircraft. Most uh, are geared towards, you know, safety, nav- you know, navigational safety, situational awareness and stuff like that through navigation of the air um, you know, the air traffic centers of the, uh, of the United States and, and, and the world, you know, so the, you know, the funny thing is that in, in fighter type aircraft, uh, they don't have a lot of na- uh, navigational equipment. They don't just because that's not really what they're built for. They're built to go out and, you know, break people's things, you know, so they don't put a lot of that, in, that navigational equipment and stuff in the fighter aircraft. Um, whereas, you know, the, uh, commercial aircraft, they have a lot more of that. Uh, and it's it, a lot more redundant systems, a lot more systems that are geared towards passenger comfort, a lot more systems that we just never experienced in a fighter. We just didn't have 90% of the systems, you know, that are in a, a modern commercial aircraft. So there's a lot from, you know, that's when your engineering geekery comes out and you, you're like, okay, well, this is cool. Let's, let's start looking or uh, learning all the ins and outs of every one of these systems. Um, so that part of it is, you know, is cool is kind of looking at, at all that stuff. And at the end of the day, love the fact that, you know, as you're flying, you know, transcons back and forth across the United States, you get to see a huge amount of, you know, the country. I mean, just looking outside on a clear day, you know, I'll, I'll look down and I'll see this beautiful lake next to a mountain. I'm like, dude, where is that? Look up on a map. I'm like, okay, this is where I'm taking the family in a couple months. We're going here just because it looks cool from the air. Um, so that part of it's awesome. You know, the travel benefits of it is awesome, you know, and, you know, for the most part, you know, the passengers, you know, there's always some outliers, you know, that are, that make life difficult, but for the, for the vast majority, um, 
you know, 99% of the uh, folks I meet, everyone's awesome. Everyone's cool. Everyone's excited. You still meet a person every now and then, even in this modern day and age that have never been on an airplane before that are over the age of 20, you know, which you find, huh, that's a little weird. Our good buddy, Andy Perwin, I talked to Rachel about Perwin was in his forties. Yeah. Before he took his first flight ever. And it was all based on fear. Yeah. Well, you know, the people that, and I, you know, I, I did this when I was a civilian flight instructor, I think a lot of the, the fear is based on, um, lack of control, lack of control, hundred you know? percent. And I, I but think, you don't have the same apprehension when you get on a city fare bus or you get on an Amtrak train. Now a train might be a little bit more apprehension, but when people get on planes, they almost get hyperventilated sometimes. And it's all, it's almost like the speed, the takeoff, the landing, the turbulence is what gets them. Yeah. So how safe is it? How safe is air travel in America or in the world today? Well, statistically in the United States, I mean, we could go world over. You are statistically safer in an airplane. I mean, that's that's a known fact. And, you know, uh, uh, per passenger mile traveled, you know, the, the, you're, you're, you're way more um, apt to die in a train crash than you are in an airplane crash. You know, um, I know it's a hot topic now. We've had two uh, planes go down in a relatively short period of time. Um, and we talked a little bit about that on, on the, on the first one. So I don't really want to, you know, get into to that and not too much speculative because the reports haven't, those haven't weren't American, were they? they? They weren't, they were foreign carriers. So like a lot of people say, you know, training sometimes varies differently. Is this from when, is this when the new Boeing jet had to get grounded by Trump? Is that, are these the accidents we're talking about when they had to take him out of the air or something? Well, they went, didn't necessarily, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. So the FAA, not, they didn't necessarily get grounded by Trump. They were, the FAA finally stepped in and said, Hey, until we could prove the safety of these aircraft, because we'd been, we'd been flying those planes for over a year. Personally, you've flown one? Yeah, they're fine. I'd take my family on one tomorrow. What, what, what plane was it? It was the, the 737 MAX. Is it cool to call a jet like that a plane or do you always call it an aircraft? I think it's semantics at this point. I'm not trying to uh, really. I'm not talking to you personally. When I say plane, does it sound, is it, or should I be saying what cut type of aircraft was that? Yeah, or aircraft. I mean, I think a, a plane is more, uh, would be more of the kind of layman's terms where you're talking aircraft. Now you're you're trying to induce a little bit of um, a professionalism when you, when you talk about an, a particular aircraft. I mean, most guys that are in the industry will say what type of aircraft you fly, not what type of plane. Plane is more of like, um, you know, kind of like a layman term. Okay, so this 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 tip or this one that we're talking about right now, the mm-hmm. specific aircraft mm-hmm. was like nose diving for some re- or something. It had a system in it that uh, you know that that because it had bigger engines, it had a, a system built into it that would cause um, during a, a major power shift would cause because the, the based on where the engines are mounted on the plane, the nose would want to pitch up. So it had a uh, a system that was assisted by the um, the autopilot that would actually trim the nose into a nose down position. So, um, obviously, um, the system, you know, worked in a various, in, in different ways. Um, after the first accident, which was the lion air crash, you know, they, the FAA and all the airlines got together and they looked at the procedures and the emergency procedures and they would run pilots through simulators and, and the procedures are there, nothing really changed in any emergency procedures. Now, the pilot's proficiency might have been a little call into question. You know, those accident reports are still um, are, are still uh, yet to, 
to, to come out in official causes and everything like that. So I, I can't really, you know, I'm not going to speak or, uh, I can't speak of a position of, uh, intelligence on it until you see the actual accident investigations done by the NTSB and all the governing agencies that come back. And these are all experts that go in there, look at everything and they have complete, you know, as much, uh, situational awareness on the situation as they can, you know, they have all the, the telemetry data, they have all this other stuff, the black box data, they have all that stuff. So those guys are going to be infinitely more smart than I am on this situation. So I'm not going to speculate until we basically those reports come out. Everything that we're, that anything that I'd be saying right now is all conjecture and, um, you know, personal opinions are uneducated personal opinions, you know? Okay. So in your uneducated personal opinion, what's the number one factor that would cause a plane wreck, an aircraft wreck, a jet, a 737 passenger plane jet. So, I mean, if you go and it's statistic, uh, you know, I'll go back to the statistics. So right now it's going to be potentially some of the last, you know, major accidents we've had is a lot of it. um, Some of it has been pilot error, Um, a system malfunctions, maybe um, at the wrong period of time, you know, there's always a myriad of things. And, and you know, one thing that any experienced pilot's gonna not do is second guess another pilot. And and not just because it's, you know, it's, you know, the bromanship or whatever the case may be. It's strictly because any experienced pilot that's been out there knows that, hey, one of the things that draws into aviation is the fact that I could fly the same route every day for a week and something different's gonna happen every single time. So saying that I know exactly where these guys, uh, or what was exactly going on in their head, exactly what was going on with their situation. Uh, I think it's naive at best, a little irresponsible because you don't, anybody that's been in any type of aircraft know there's so many different things that happen so many different times, or I mean, just so many variables can go into the situation unless you have all the information in front of you with you know telemetry data, black box data, all the other stuff that you can get. You really can't make an educated decision. So what's going to cause most though? Pilot air, mechanical or weather? So, you know, and it could be a factor of all of those. There could be some na- so a lot Are those of the main st- 3. Statistically, yeah, it's it's, it's going to be weather related um, and then so what happens is, you know, um, a lot of these things um, can come down to so you know the weather stuff can come down to pilot air they would tag it as pilot error and use the weather as a contributing factor. Well, the pilot should have never attempted to go in there or the pilot should have done this. A lot of the times they just tag everything on the pilot because it's easier, you know, um, and that. Before you go further, tell me what you would see where you would say, we're not going in there or what somebody on the ground in air traffic control is going to see. We're not, is it thunder? Is it lightning? Obviously thunderstorms, convective activity. You know, these, a lot of these thunderstorms have downdrafts, microbursts, things of the, the convective weather that can actually, um, they could produce downdrafts that could exceed the performance capabilities of the aircraft, you know, and the, the, the nice thing is there are regulations. If it's reported, you know, you don't go in. You go somewhere else, you carry extra fuel, you'll divert, or you'll just, you make the decision. And, but that's known situations, right? A lot of times when you see these happen, you know, is, you know, there's warnings for everything. There is, there might be a micro burst warning that's out there, but nobody's reported it. Now, the next thing that happens, a plane gets hit by it and it, hopefully they make it out if, or if something happens, they crash. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to try to say, well, there was a warning out there, even though 13 other airplanes or 50 other airplanes made it, it didn't experience this one guy hit it. Well, now he's to blame because, you know, he was going in there, you know, so there you're, you're working with, um, variables, you know, um, 
you know, the funny thing is like you would never hold, you would never hold um, a weatherman hostage for making a bad weather report. Right. Right. Well, even yeah. though you want to, because <laughs> you want to, but you're not going to, I mean, I would love, I would love to have that job where I could be wrong 95% of the time yeah. and still be employed. It might rain tomorrow. That would, yeah. <laughs> Good night. Not. Yeah, exactly. There is a, uh, you know, uh, whatever percent chance that it might and Doppler radar yeah, says 50% of the time it works every time, Yeah, you know? Like, so, it, so when you, when you start, let's, let's, Stay on weather. For yeah. A second. So if you're looking at the weather, you're you're working with you're working within a regime that's unpredictable, right? So that part of it, you know, and you could use the abundance of caution. Um, so if you're sitting there and you're and you're looking at these charts once again, you're working with un- imperfect data. You know, these, none of these charts. I mean, we're looking at the same charts that weathermen are looking at, right? And if they and these guys, that's their only job. They're not flying a plane while we're doing these reports. They're just doing a report that's 90% of the time's wrong. So we're looking at the same charts and how, you know, you can't reasonably expect a guy that's flying an aircraft, you know, that doesn't do weather full time to make a hundred percent guess on what's going on. You know, you could see situations. So then why are there not more instances or experiences in this heavy, heavy turbulence Mm -hmm. that you hear sometimes of, 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 of the flight attendants getting thrown around and the carts flipping upside down? Why is there not more of that if there's so many different weather patterns occurring every day across the country? Because there is, you know, there is a good forecasting capability, you know, so why we might not be 100 percent exact, we could we could uh, isolate it down to a regime, a region. So most pilots are going to see this. They're like, hey, man, you know, these and, and, and basically what they'll come out with, they'll call it a, um, uh, a, sig, uh, a cigarette, significant weather reporting. So like, hey, we got a cigarette of, of, um, of uh, severe turbulence in this area. So any pilot's going to see that and they're just going to avoid the area. Like, hey, we're going to take more gas and, the, and they'll talk to their dispatchers of the airplane. They'll say, hey. Our route has us flying through this area of significant turbulence. I'm not going to go there. So put some, if, if, if weight allowed, hey, put some extra pl- uh, fuel on the plane and we're going to take a different route. Will some pilots say we're going to go there? I can't speak intelligently. It's like, you know, I can't speak intelligently. How big better. can these areas be? They vary. They can be small, isolated areas. They could be the size of states. They could be the size of multiple states. I mean, really? So it could be hundreds and hundreds of miles. It can be. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of these areas, and sometimes they also vary by altitude. Keep in mind, it's a three dimensional environment. So um, the nice thing that we have is I think we have good weather forecasting capability to where they're like, hey, these conditions are uh, are uh, perfect for this type of, uh, of uh, convective weather, this type of hazardous weather. Okay, whether it's happening there or not, we don't know. Um, and then what you also see is we also have a thing. It's you know we call them uh, uh, air mitts, which are basically uh, air uh, that basically are, are pyreps, which are basically pilot reports. So you know, let's say a pilot's cruising across and he gets hit by something that's not forecast. You know, hey, I just got hit by this significant jolt right there, and they mark the position and then they put out a report to all other pilots. You know, so now you could either avoid that area, slow the plane down. So now as soon as something hit, somebody hits something bad like that, you actually disseminate that information through everybody that could potentially be uh, go through that area or be in that area. How many hours do you have in a commercial jet now? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm in the neighborhood of about 4,000. Of flying passengers around? Yeah. Is that a lot for a pilot? On average, you know, depending on how much you fly, the you know, FA maximum for the type of for the for the type of uh, commercial aviation is roughly a thousand hours per year. Uh, I 
I'm a, I have a tendency with my military commitments that I still have. I fly about 800 hours per year. So 4,000 hours a year. How many instances have you personally been involved in where you hit turbulence to where you're like, holy shit, uh, this is not good. This is not the stewardess or the flight attendant. Is it bad to call them stewardess now? That's the old uh, term. Yeah, right? I think it's flight, flight attendants attendant. yeah. get thrown around. Has that happened to you in 4,000 hours? That has not. Um, you know, we have, there are certain areas where, you know, you have these warning, um, things that are happening, but anytime you, you use an abundance of caution, you know, when you're flying commercially and you see, um, I know a lot of people get annoyed, you know, especially by the nervous flyers that want their belt fed drinks. Um, and they see, you know, the captain tells the flight attendants to, to sit down and, you know, and bring the carts in. Cause that's the worst thing that you want. You know, something like that happens. You don't want, you know, people bouncing around. That's bad. But now you have these three and four hundred pound carts that could potentially break your around. neck. Absolutely, and that now that's even worse. So it's generally the abundance of caution. If we're going into an area that we know that might be that might be turbulent, there's per, uh, there's reports of turbulence, and once again they classify turbulence in three. You you know in, in basically three distinctions. You have light, you have moderate, and you have severe. Um, you know severe turbulence. Anybody that experiences something like that, where some people actually get thrown to the uh, to the wall or there's basically the the classification of severe turbulence is you're unable to control your aircraft there's moments in time where you are unable to control the aircraft you're along for the ride essentially you can't maintain an altitude you're just flying through it and then obviously you, you regain um those areas actually require you to declare an emergency you divert to the nearest field because now you have to have the aircraft inspected obviously you have to get uh, injuries tended to but you're required to go to the nearest. any idea in the top of your head brian that how many aircrafts have had to do this in the united states in the past year does it happen a lot it doesn't happen a lot but it does happen it does it does i think uh there you know there's there's several especially you know when we live in an area that's ripe with it you know anytime you're flying over uh, mountain ranges, you know, in Reno, the folks over at the Wasatch Mountains going into Salt Lake, you know, people that live there know it as soon as they're coming in, they're going to get bounced around. The folks in Denver, Rockies, are in, right, yeah, the Rockies, they're intimate, intimately aware. So we live in mountainous areas, you know, um, and it, it can happen, you know, without warning at sometimes. We do have a lot of good forecasting equipment and uh, forecasting procedures and information dissemination procedures that are out there, which allow. Um, these in, these incidents are more exceptions to the rule as opposed to, um, you know, kind of standard. Um, so because of that, that's one of the things that's going to make it um, much more safe. So the weather is always something to contend with, and that's always something we're looking at. And, you know, once again, the nice thing is with the, you know, commercial travel, there's always two pilots up there. Both pilots are equally qualified to fly the aircraft, you know, and typically what happens is, you know, you just divvy up the legs. Captain will fly one leg, first officer flies, and you just rotate back and forth. There's not one guy that does all the flying and the other guy's just sitting there at self-loading baggage. You know, you're both qualified aircraft, they're uh, qualified operators of the aircraft. So both people, if something happened to one, the other person could easily fly, land the aircraft safely. What about daytime flying in comparison to nighttime flying? Is there any difference in your mind as the pilot or is one tougher than the other vision wise? Is there, I mean, obviously the planes are equipped electronically that they can take, it doesn't matter because there's tons of overnight flights. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer one to the other? Um, it's personal preference. Is that a dumb question? Because it's a tough question to answer. I mean, because everyone each is his own. Like if you do a lot of international traveling, you know, they're flying all night long because that's what the customer wants. The customer wants to leave where their area is and they want to get 
to whatever their destination is in the morning. After so they, they sleep. Yeah, yeah, after they sleep all the whole time on the flight and stuff like that. So obviously, you know, this is you're going to you're going to curtail your schedules to what the customers want, you know. So that type of flying, um, you know, it's tough on your, you know, getting your body set up to it. But like anything else, once you adjust to it, if that's what you're doing, you know, you can easily adjust to it. Uh, the, the things I like about night flying are a there's generally less air traffic out there. Um, the rides are typically smoother because everything kind of has a tendency, all the turbulent, you know, um, whether a lot of it's driven by frontal movements, but some of it is driven by the differential heating of the earth's surface that will cause the up and down. Um, that largely kind of negates, you know, because it, everything is kind of cooling down. So the, the weather has a tendency to be a little bit smoother, um, less traffic, you know, it's, it's typically a little bit more efficient because if there's less, tra less traffic, you get to go directly to where you want to go. You don't have to fly these highways in the sky, if you will. Um, so those are, uh, those are some of the, the bonuses, uh, of night flying, you know, some of the, the things that are obviously, um, the detractors, are, which might make it a little bit more difficult is obviously your ability to judge distances at night is going to be compromised. That's just physiological, you know, until we, uh, you know, graft cat eyes or something like that onto us, you know, that's just part. Do we have equipment in the aircraft that helps us mitigate that? Absolutely. We do. But just with the naked eye, if I have to look outside, the side window or something like that. You know, I'm not going to, at night, I'm not going to be able to see the mountains as clearly as I can during the day. Um, so that part of it, that can be a challenge a little bit. Um, but really, um, and you know, the, in the biggest thing is if you're, you know, fighting, um, you know, being on the backside of your circadian rhythm clock, you know, so if you're used to, if you're like a standard human that, you know, they're used to being up at, at sunrise and going to bed at sunset, that's your normal circadian rhythm adjusting it, uh, 12 hours out can be difficult. Even if you're practicing, it takes a long time to adjust your schedule and get to that. And even then you still find fight bouts of tiredness because th that's not how our body is. It's not how it's built, you know? So you're, you're inducing some artificiality to the way to your body's natural, um, uh, natural, uh, plan of operation, if you will. Right. So what, if you had to pick a route in America, is there a certain quadrant that is safer than another one? If you flew from like, let's say the North, the Northwest to Maine, or you flew a little bit further down the West coast across the country, is there one that's safer than the other? Or can any of them, you know, change at any given time? Is it safer to go over Texas? There's a lot of thunderstorms down there. There's a lot of hurricanes and stuff like that in that area in the yeah. Southern United States. But what there's tornadoes in the Midwest, mm -hmm. Is the north part of the country the best place to be at, or is there a lot more weather patterns up there because well, it gets colder up there? Well, you got you got frontal movements, you got snowstorms, you got. I mean, every place has its own challenges, and I know it's frustrating to the traveling public when their flight gets delayed or it gets diverted. But you know, at the end of the day, it's all safety related. You know, the reason why the airlines are doing this is it's you know what we always talk about is the abundance of caution, um, because. Nobody wants to have an accident or an incident in an aircraft. Passengers don't want it. Airlines don't want it. FAA, nobody wants that. You know, I understand there, there are some um, intangibles that you're dealing with in air travel, no different than if you're driving your car. You know, who knows? You hit that, you know, you have a tire blot and you spin off the side or something like that or hit, your, hit a patch of black ice or something like that. You know, those are those inherent, inherent risks that we take walking out the front door of our home. You know, you just have to understand it doesn't matter whether you're walking, you're driving, you're taking a train, you're skateboarding, you're friggin' 
taking an airplane, there's inherent risk of leaving your home. Um, and we always try to mitigate that. The airlines are constantly trying to mitigate it. Each one of the airlines have their own set of weather forecasters that work um, really closely with the FAA and all the government agencies um, report looking at weather. Uh, there's, uh, and, and so, yes, so the airlines are willing to, you know, inconvenience passengers in the interest of safety. Well, hell yes. I mean, you'd have to be an ignorant ass to be like, oh, I got to get there. I'm like, dude, are you serious right now? You'd be surprised. It's unreal. You'd be surprised. It is. And you're just like. If if you came up to me as the captain and said, Chad, we're going to fly into Houston. Like we just experienced this. We were going down to Houston in September. We got to Denver and all all flights going into Houston across the country were canceled. Mm -hmm. And there was people pissed off. I got to get there. I got to get there. I'm like, dude, even if you get there, they're they're like taking boats into the airport because the floods are so big. And people were so mad that they were not getting them into Houston. Yeah. I'm, I was like, dude, just get me back to Reno. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm, yeah. I'm good with my life. You know, and that you see a lot of that is like, you know what? There's a, there's an Avis right down the road, bro. Hook it up. Yeah. You know, there, there's a, there's a myriad of ways to travel this country, man. You know, and, uh, I, I would challenge you to explore each and every single one of them. <laughs> but you're as the pilot, that's what I want to yeah. tell people all the time is I'm like, dude, these pilots, have families. Yeah. They're, they're very qualified to be doing what they're doing. They don't want to get into any dangerous situation. They don't want their kids worried about them yeah. either. This is, exactly. you got to trust them when you're in there. I was yeah. telling your wife, Rachel, about like when I'm in a, when I get in a plane and I see a pilot sitting there, that my first reaction is to sit right next to him and just start, whoa, 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 whoa. Like yeah. I'm doing to you right now. Yeah. Like, what was that? What was that? Yeah. What, like what, one of the things that I always think about is like autopilot is, yeah. is it a hundred percent autopilot? When does autopilot go on and when does it go off? Do you, when you hit turbulence, do you automatically take it off or is, is, is the autopilot take off or are you manually taken off from the runway and then you turn autopilot on? So it, it depends. Every airline has their recommended procedures, you know, and manufacturers have their procedures and what you do. The autopilots are great um, to help alleviate the task loading on on the pilots, because the funny thing is, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is, um, it's not just the pilot flying the plane. You know, if all I had to do was fly the plane, that'd be awesome. But now I got to talk on the radio with air traffic control and they have their own set. They're dealing with all these planes. So they, you know, we have our departure procedures coming out of the air, airports that the air traffic control can change all the time. And they'll do that. And they're like, Hey, remember that, you know, Hey, you're supposed to be at 7,000 feet at that fix. No, we need you at this thing. You're supposed to be at this airspeed. We know we need you at this. And everybody has their, um, you know, has their, uh, their areas that they're concerned with, you know, and it's up to the pilot to disseminate. I'm like, well, can I safely do that? Or can I not? So you're constantly making these, these judgment calls. So especially in congested airspace, like Los Angeles, you know, Chicago, name any metropolitan area, you know, a lot of times the pilots will, uh, lean on the autopilot a little bit more because what air traffic control is asking you to do takes you away from, flying the aircraft. I mean, it doesn't, it's not uncommon for you're going in there, you know, for the last couple hundred miles or the last 200 miles, they said, Hey, you're going to land on this runway. Okay. Then 20 miles from the runway, you're like, no, switch it up to this one. You're like, Oh crap. I got to get all this stuff in. There's a lot of procedures I'm doing. I got to make sure I have enough runway available, make sure all this other stuff. So there's copious amounts of computations that you're doing during this time, which a lot of people don't understand. So the other pilot's great because it'll, it'll handle the basics of flying the aircraft, i.e., you know, keep you level, do some altitude changes and things of that nature. Now, transport category aircraft are inherently stable, which means if you, you know, and each of the aircraft can be what we call trimmed out, you know, just like you're doing with a boat or a car or anything like that. Put in your control surfaces, hold them there. And then there's, 
little trim tabs on all the control surfaces to now where you could take out any forces that you require. So you could literally get the plane trimmed out and you could go hands off and the plane will fly where it wants to, you know, without the autopilot. So autopilots are great for that. And obviously you're primarily using a lot of them during the cruise portion. Cruise portion. Yeah. Because turbulence that's off. Turbulence and down depends on the aircraft and depends on the procedures. You know, severe turbulence. Yeah. You want to hand fly it because you don't want what happens with the autopilot. The autopilot will start running the trim. And then all of a sudden when the autopilot can't do it anymore, the autopilot just kicks off and says, Hey man, I can't do anything. And you're not ready for that. If you're yeah, not ready. Or exactly. And you're, well, you're not feeling the trend. You're not feeling it. Yeah. That, what, what's going on. So typically, yeah, going through severe turbulence or thunderstorms, you typically want your uh, autopilots off. So Never can, on takeoff or landing though. Is autopilot on or no. is it, can it be? You're doing that manually. Manually. Now you can do auto lands. Um, auto lands are, are, are basic or are, are specific for very low visibility, like going into San Francisco and it's super foggy, Seattle, those areas where the visibility is nothing. You know, you've seen in those foggy days, like where you could barely drive a car, yet they're taking off planes now or taking off and landing planes. Now, autopilot, they have auto land features with, um, you know, all the major, all, all airlines can have some form of auto land and all planes have some form of auto land for the most part. And what that allows you to do is to get into these fields. Now, what people don't understand is what these autopilot landings or these auto lands, it requires two parts. A, the airport has to have operating uh, equipment, you know, I you know, their instrument landing system, they have to have all the lights, you know, there's a list of things that are required to be operational for you to, um, from the airport to make that auto land, um, uh, legal, you know, we call it a cat category three approach, which is all the way down to the lowest practical minimums. Okay. Now that the airport squared away, now the airplane, okay. As the airplane, has it had an auto land in the pre uh, prerequisite amount of time? Has the pilot done an auto land in the prerequisite amount of time? Is everybody current and qualified and ready to go? If the answer is yes to both of those things, awesome. Then we'll do an auto land. Now, the thing to keep in mind is the auto land function is they're, they're not very robust as far as like conditions have to be pretty good for the computer to, to attempt a landing. I.e., you know, like whenever you're seeing these crazy crosswinds and these planes are basically in a, in a crab the whole way down and that's all hand flying. The computers can't handle any of that stuff. Does that scare you at all? Any of the things you just described when you get those kind of winds and, you know, in Denver you get. The, oh, yeah. It almost. What, what is going on when you're, and I've experienced this probably in Denver more than any other yeah. airport. Are the runways unevenly built? Are there potholes in the runway or is that wind shears pushing the jet and making it feel like you're actually like getting pushed left to right? That's, and, the, that's the wind. And that, is that safe to take off in? You, you have, you know, every aircraft has its limitations, you know, and as long as they fit within the limitations, now it boils down to pilot skill, proficiency and stuff like that. Obviously you don't get to the airline level unless you have demonstrated that type of proficiency in that, that. So skill. what are you doing as a pilot when you're, when you're, if you're the captain or you're, you're in, does one guy take off and one guy land or is that? No, that each mean? one flies a, a segment, a segment. Yeah. So what, what do you prefer? First of all, taking off or landing, is there a personal opinion or are you, are they both just like riding a bike to you? They're both like riding a bike. I, I like landing cause it's always, you know, I mean, you always have a, a challenge with the guy next to you. Like, all right, man, you got the first landing. I got the second landing, you know, whoever has the, uh, whoever has the worst landing buys the first round of beer really? at the end of the day. Yeah. No, it's, it's friendly competition, you know, and stuff like that. So I, I like the challenge of landing because there's a lot of stuff that go into it. Obviously the winds, 
uh, temperatures, the trim level, where the aircraft is based on its fuel load and stuff like that. There's a lot of variables that go into it. Why so. do some aircrafts hit the runway so much harder? Is I've heard before that like Navy pilots hit the runway hard because they're used to hitting when they were in mission or whatever, when they'd come in real fast and, and hit. Is that true? Or is it just, is that inexperience when you feel like a, 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 a hard slam into the runway? You know, a lot of it is, you know, obviously some of it is plane design. You know, some planes are have a little bit uh, are designed to land a little bit uh, based on their aerodynamics and everything like that. The shape of their wing, um, it's easier to land those planes softer than others. Um, and once again, it also depends on the uh, it also depends on the uh, environmentals on the runway. You know, if it's a if it's a wet runway, a ro- stormy runway, dude, you're you do, you're not going to grease that plane on because there can be some puddles of water. So now you could hydroplane skid out of control. So you plan it hard to get those get the uh, the the gear to break any type of hydroplane with any standing puddles on the water, and you get on the brakes and you get it slowed down. Same thing when it's a really windy, um, uh, w- windy type uh, type of a day. You know, gusty winds and all that because these control for you know these wind uh, forces shift all over the place, and you get the the plane to gets thrown around. So the faster you get the plane down, you get it stopped. It minimizes those forces on the aircraft. So environmentally, there's a lot of reasons for a um, for a hard landing. That being said, sometimes, you know, hey, like everyone's human, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And it could be a long flight, you know, and the guy could be tired. It, there, there's there's a myriad of, uh, a guy or gal can be tired. There's a myriad of reasons why. Or sometimes, you know, hey, maybe a little gust. I've had it happen to me. Everything looks good. And boom, all of a sudden I'm getting ready to land. A gust hits, get a little bit slower, have to pitch up and bang, it slams down. I'm like, well can't plan for that gust at two feet over the ground you know right i just brought a 75 ton aircraft two thousand miles across the country what does it take at that point because i've had that in phoenix going mm-hmm. into phoenix or yeah. tempe or tucson maybe um big gust hitch right yeah right before wheels touched down yeah. and, the, and the pilot pulled up well you, you're trying to adjust there's not a lot you could do at that point so he pulled up and we had to reroute to lima or P- oh, he, uh, to another airport but it, the, the the there you could see around phoenix or whatever airport we were landing in the sky was like purple and there was lightning yeah. 360 degrees around us and right when we were getting ready to touch down bry yeah. this shear hit us and just and, and he just pulled straight back up and and rerouted well and that was so there was a wind shear probably that hit you know so they did what they call a, a go around rejected uh rejected landing so he basically and that's what you do you, you go bring the power up and you're like, Hey, this is not good. We're going to go. How around. many times in 4,000 hours or all the landings you've done? Have you had to do that? Uh, all the commercial flights you've done? Yeah. Maybe three times. I've done three go arounds. Three go arounds. Um, and most of which. Any I, into this airport? Uh, none to Reno. Really? Um, most of it, I did one into Washington and that was, that was in one of the things you're talking about, what would cause you to divert a lot of it, weather. Some of it is, you know, everyone thinks that every, all the equipment on the airports work. And it, that's not always the case. So one of the go-arounds I did was actually going into uh, Washington Reagan. It was at night. They were giving visual approaches. And it, I think the weather was a little questionable on whether they could give those visual approaches. Well, then they have these, these um, they call them VASIs or PAPIs. So they're pre- precision approach path indicators. Bottom line is what they are is when I see a runway, I have these uh, uh, series of lights that will tell me that gives me a visual representation of my glide path to the airport so or to the runway so because typically you want to fly a, a three degree glide path nice and stabilized glide path to the runway well at this time those weren't those were not functioning you know are they required no um but at the end of the day 
you know, we came in, we're doing a, a visual approach over, you know, over a, uh, uh, over the, the, the Potomac that's right there and we're coming down into it. And at the end of the day, you're just, it, 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 it seemed obviously fatigue was a little bit, everyone was kind of tired cause it was a all night transcon. But as we're, you know, coming in on this visual approach, it just seemed like you're diving into a black hole, if you will. Oh. And because, and you had no other, you had the runway lights, but you had no uh, visual guidance of whether or not you were, um, whether or not I was on the proper glide path. You know, I'm just kind of looking at the relation and the angle of the lights as we're coming in here. So, you know, we have this thing, all pilots, it's called stabilized approach criteria, which means, you know, you have to be in a certain regime, certain descent path as you're coming into the runway. So at the end of the day, I hit a thousand feet, didn't have, I was, you know, bringing it down faster than I wanted to. Um, based on, you know, visual illusions and perceptions. So we initiated a go around from there. I'm like, hey, I don't like this approach. I screwed something up, you know. And the nice thing is, the, you know, the airlines, there is no, um, you know, there's no backlash from them because it's all safety, you know. And we're like, hey, did a go around, came back around, did it again, landed fine out of it. You mm-hmm. know, every now and then some things, they just don't look right. If it doesn't look right, doesn't feel right, it's not right, go around, do it again. You know, not a big deal. Um, that was the one, that was the only go around I initiated based on, you know, and, and going to the original point, you know, now going back to what I saw, I'm like, I'd be hard pressed, you know, if there was weather and those same conditions happened at night, if there was weather and those, uh, those pappy lights were out of service, I might not go in there. I might go to another airport just based on all those weather criteria and all those equipment criteria. I'm, I'm like, dude, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting people at risk for something. If you want us to go in there, fix your equipment, <laughs> you know? So, so as the pilot, mm-hmm. you have the ability, there could be, there could be some, you know, backlash from the airline, but as the pilot, you have the 100% control of that. Yeah. Even if air traffic control is telling you one thing, yeah. you can dictate what you're going to do, the move you're going to make. 100%. All the time. And, and what's the term for that? I think we got into that yeah, one time. Yeah, it before. was, you know, it's basically a pilot can deviate from any regulation. That, That's uh, what happened meet, in John Wayne. Yeah, that, that to meet, you know, to, to what the, the pilot feels uh, to safely operate that aircraft, you know, and... Um, so that's, that's essentially, yeah, what, what was going on with there. You could deviate from those regs. Yeah, everybody says, hey, legally, you know, just like you see all those posters, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's smart or, you know, yeah. or safe. Yeah. So, and that's what the pilot, you know, that's why the pilots are up there. And that's why there's two guys. And that's why we're always, you know, hey, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? Or is there something? And it's mostly because, yeah, you got, you know, the captains are more, you know, got a lot more, um, typically more experienced than the first officers, but you bounce ideas off each other. I'm like, Hey, did you consider this? Did you consider this? Yep. And that's what you're doing. Cause may not ever, not, you don't always have the entire picture and it's always nice getting a second opinion. I'm like, Hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think about that? He's like, yeah, I totally agree. Or how far, how long does it take? How much different is captain than a first officer? Is it hours? Um, it's not hours. It's a uh, typically, um, time. With the company. Time with the company. And yeah. you're a first officer. Yeah. Because you've been there four years. Yeah. Flight. Five, uh, five. Yeah. Five but years. you're also still full time with the military. Part time. Uh, Part time with the military. Yeah. 
Do you want to make it to captain? Do you have goals commercially like you did military-wise? Is this something that you take as much? And I know the responsibility level's there. I know you're badass. I know it's safe. But do you take the same amount of pride and passion in, in climbing that corporate mil- or that corporate aircraft level now with American Airlines or whoever you might be in the future yeah. that you did with the United States military? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have my bid in for captain. I just uh, I could hold captain on the East Coast. You could hold it right now yeah. on the East Coast. So the problem is now I commute from Reno to New York, which... That's pretty brutal. I'm not going to do that. You know, so, so when you start talking about Transcon mm-hmm. is is America or just across the country? Yeah. Okay. International is across the body of water. It doesn't uh, have to be. It, yeah, it's typically over a border. So, a border. So yeah. Canada, you go into Saskatchewan, you go into, when you go into South America, you go, the route that I've always taken was to it. I've, I've taken LA down mm-hmm. the West coast of South America. I've taken Dallas down and then I've taken Atlanta down through Miami and Cuba and then into bonus air, bonus, bonus airs that yeah. way. Bonus airs. Um, do you, do you, pref- do you like flying over big bodies of water like that? Does that cause a different set of, of, of uh, not what are the, the words escaping me now, not circumstances, but is that regulations is, yeah. is, is, it, procedures. is it? Yeah. Procedures. Completely so there different? are two types. They have two, uh, departments. They have the international and the domestic. I'm considered domestic, even though I could fly into Mexico and Canada, that's considered still domestic. Um, now when you're going into South America, those are international. So now what happens is you go into IKO, which is an international governing, governing agency. It's a little bit different than the FAA, a lot of similarities, but there are some differences, um, and on their regulatory, uh, um, uh, on their regulatory stance. So you have to be familiar with both. Essentially you have to speak two languages, you know, I mean, as far as the regulatory guidance, um, now when you're crossing big bodies of water, now there's equipment changes that you have to have and there's there's routes and there are procedures for that because there's going to be large areas where, um, you know, nowadays it's a little bit different, but there was large areas where the plane was largely not in contact. They didn't have radars that could stretch out the entire Pacific Ocean, which a lot of people didn't realize with that, you know, with the, uh, the um, what was it, the Malaysian air crash. They're like, what do you mean you didn't have them on radar? It's like, well, dude, what makes you think the entire world is covered by radar? What year was that? Ah, that was, you know, that triple seven that went down. Um, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, it was several years ago, but, um, there was one not too long ago where somebody, no, I'm not talking about the German suicide one, but there was another one that was weather where a guy got in. It was just three, four years ago, maybe two years ago. There was a big aircraft that went down overseas. Um, that was the, uh, Malaysian. Is yeah. that the Malaysian? So yeah. it was just like three or four years yeah, ago. Yeah. It was like three or four years. And ago. that was all weather, right? No, they, they, they still haven't really speculated what's going on. I mean, really? obviously the, the, they haven't found the crash. So they, there's a lot of speculation out there, but, uh, bottom line is they suspect that, uh, that the, the pilot had a, you know, suicidal. Another, no, it was, was kind of like a German wings thing. Yeah. No freaking way. So, but, so everyone's wondering like, well, why can't you find the wreckage? Why can't you do this? Why can't you pinpoint where it went down? And it's like, well, well, you seem like you got a pretty good head on your shoulders. I've known you for quite a few years. I don't see that in you. But is there are there precautions taken now by these airlines to where you guys have to go see a couch doctor a certain amount of hours a month to make sure that your head's not in that same spot that German Wings was or this Malaysian aircraft? So you, there's a couple of things. I mean, obviously, the uh, there's different regulations. The So we had the... The EAA, which is the European Aviation Agency, they, that ha- happened the, the German wings thing. So their regulations are different. They allowed people, a single person, to be in the cockpit um, when you went to the restroom or something like that, where the U.S. airlines don't allow that. You have to bring a flight attendant. You have to always have two people in the cockpit regardless. And obviously— But why? 
but now I know why, but that's not the question I want to ask. What would a flight attendant do if a guy says I'm bringing this plane in? Are they equipped to stop him from doing that? Or are they going to run out and try to knock on the door? You know, it, it, once again, we've never had that scenario go into, but you know, they're obviously there for the mutual gain of making sure this other person is not doing something crazy, you know? Um, so when you get up to take a leak on a flight to Washington DC from, from San Francisco mm-hmm. and you got to go to the bathroom, you, you radio a flight attendant to come up to the front and say, Hey, sit in my seat. Yeah. They come up in the, uh, in the cockpit as well. And they, you know, and, and they, and, and, and vice versa. So I'll go use the restroom, come back. We'll do the exchange. I'll sit back down in my seat. Captain will get up if he has to use a, or he or she has to use the restroom and then they'll do the exchange. So there's always two people in a cockpit at, at any one And in Germany, time. German wings, they didn't have to do that. Well, in, in the EAA, the they, EAA. Did, they did not require that. That's the Euro- European airline. Yeah, European Air not a, uh, Aviation Administration. Administration. Okay. I, I could be screwing that up, but it's basically the EAA is their not government. as bad as I screwed up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's their governing agency over there. So there, I mean, there are regulatory differences on that. You know, also, who knows what there? I, yeah, once again, I haven't been privy to the report. I don't know if there was indicators that that the either the airline ignored or the EAA ignored. I don't know. You know, indicators in this pilot that maybe something's up with him. Yeah. Like indicators like, you know, cause people look around, they see you like if someone's acting off or maybe some, Hey, maybe this guy's on some sort of prescribed. Is it taken as far though, Brian is like to look in. I mean, obviously they would look into terrorism, right? Because this is exactly what happened in nine 11. Sure. They would look at something like that. But at the end of the day, you know, what kind of statement was this guy making? The dude flew it into a mountain. So he was, oh, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to fly it into a building. He wasn't making a political statement, you know, things of that nature. That makes sense. You know, but at the end of the day, yeah, I'm sure that, that everything. What kind of jackass do you have to be to commit suicide with 150 to 200 passengers on a plane? I mean, what, I mean, I just, it, I can't even fathom that. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I can't either. So, I mean. I know it's not even worth talking about, but can you imagine having that mindset that you, you're not only going to take your own life, but you have to hurt that many other families, the people that are left, you know, that have to know that their family, it just, that would, I just can't imagine it just, we don't even have to go into it. It's sickening, right? It's, it's, it's a weird thing. So you're, you're, you know, you're always curious. I'm like, and you know, the funny thing is like with the FAA, like you're so regulated as far as, um, you know, I can't take much more than an aspirin without reporting it to the FAA. Like, you can't self-medicate as a pilot. You can't do a lot. Well, There's- when you said that comment the other uh, 10 minutes ago about the landings and you guys are, who's buying the first round of beers tonight? Yeah. How how many beers can you have that night if you're flying the next day? Well, there's so the uh, right now the regulatory guidance the military was we call it 12 hours bottle to throttle so you can't have a drink within 12 hours from your takeoff time. You know the FAA is eight hours. You know bottle to throttle if you will or you know, obviously you can't feel the effects of alcohol and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, you know, when you, you go uh, and we land, it's not, Hey, we landed here. Let's get wasted. What happens is, especially when you're a little bit off kilter going through these time zones, what I found to have a beer or two, it helps me go to sleep, yeah. you know, as opposed to, you know, cause I know there's, a, that's one of the, probably the well, a bigger, uh, one of the big things with the airlines is like, dude, what you don't realize is you know, you're going through all these time zones constantly. So you always, I always try to keep myself on West coast time, you know? So if I land, you know, and I typically go to bed between nine and 10 o'clock. So if I land, you know, at eight o'clock on, you know, in New York, I'm going to stay up until midnight, one o'clock just to keep myself on my standard body clock, you know? So those are the things that, that can be difficult to try to keep those, you know, your, your same, 
Um, because I do, we do do short trips. So I'm just going to try to keep that same, my, myself on the same body clock. And you know, you come down, you land, I have a beer and it helps me, it helps me get to sleep when I need to, you know? So little things like that. And, and there's all obviously the regulatory guidance that you have to, um, you know, that you have to, uh, uh, that you have to adhere to, you know, and everybody's looking at you and, you know, there are some outliers at, at these guys that, you know, and like any, <laughs> like any, uh, um, uh, profession, it's like, you know, you, you get these and it's funny cause you, we, I was talking to somebody about this and I'm like, you know, you know, every single pilot that screwed up, you know, every pilot that has done something anywhere in the nation, everybody in the nation knows about, you know, we're name another position that it happens. Like your mechanic, do you know every mechanic that had a DUI? Do you know every, you know, every, uh, 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 name a profession. Yeah. You don't, you don't know that, but every time a pilot, you know, goes out and does something stupid, everybody in the country knows about it. So yeah. there, there is a, you know, there's an accepted level of scrutiny that you're going to be as a pilot, you know, that is, uh, that's a little bit different. So you're like, well, you know, don't be the guy to screw that up, man. No, you know, know your limits. And I still hold myself to military limits and that way it keeps everything nice and simple and clean. And you still get to fly jets. Yeah. Like you get to still fly MIGs. You still no, get to fly well, no, we fly, we fly air. No. So I fly F fives right now. F fives. Yeah. So those are the ones that are, that we use to simulate MIGs. To simulate so, yeah. MIGs. We don't, we don't fly Russian aircraft. No, but you, they were the ones that simulate the MIGs just like the one, the MIGs and in Top Gun. Gun. Yeah. They, that, that was a, that was our unit that did the, in the original Top Gun movie that provided, um, if the, you the, didn't get to do that right now at 40 years old, however old you are mm -hmm. in your military career, are you fine being a dad with two kids with Rachel at home and flying 800 hours a year, maybe even more full time now for commercial or, or do you have to get that adrenaline rush? No, you know, that's the one thing you, you we touched at. on this last yeah. time, but to me, you're this, this job's cooler shit to be able to fly for American airlines. Yeah. But to somebody that's three feet from another aircraft going as fast as these F 16s go and these F fives go, what do you, what, how, how are you going to supplement that when that, when your finny flight comes? Well, you know, I think, uh, everybody's got to come up with that. Some guys can't let go and they find other ways to do it. Uh, I think I will be fine. You know, it's, uh, you know, between the, the wife and the kids, they're, uh, they're challenging enough. Um, you know, I've, I've had a great run, you know, it's, it, it's just like when you get done playing, you know, when I could lo no longer play college football, you know, I knew my, my football career was, but this is fine. This is fighter jets, man. Sure. At the, at the end of the day, it's, it's time to like, okay, take that energy. It's like, dude, I had a great time. I busted my butt. I did, you know, I worked my butt off to get there and I gave it my all so I could walk away from the, from the fact like, Hey, I can no longer do this. I have no regrets. I had a great time doing it. I'm, I'm good to move on to the next chapter. You know, um, maybe I'll go buy a small airplane and go fly that. You how, know? how can you, can you go back and fly with your experience? If you're 60, can you call up top gun and go, Hey, I want to come get an hour in. No, you can't. No, no. Once you leave the military, because your body's not going to take it. You know, I'm sure on a case by case basis, obviously they let, uh, you know, John Glenn and stuff like that, you know, these, these, um, uh, PR type things, you know, but no, I, and, and at the end of the day, I wouldn't want to, man. I, you know, it's kind of like when I got done playing football, I was like, dude, I did 12 years, no major injuries. I'm good. 
You know, yeah. I'm not going to, and you were an NCAA division one football. Player. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to go try out for one of these arena teams or maybe even the CFL and, you know, <laughs> put risk blowing my knees out or blowing my back out for, you know, for $30,000 or 40,000, whatever they're getting paid in this new XFL. You know, these guys are making nothing. I'm like, dude, good on you guys. You know, hopefully it works. But you know, if I, thankfully my back, it was trying to hit my backup plan. <laughs> you know, uh, I was, I was very happy you know, obviously would have loved to, to give the NFL a shot. Hey, didn't work out. That's fine. I, you know, yeah, I, had no, this, I had no regrets. This, this career path is like on a different level. Yeah. I mean, but it, it, like, I'm sure Walter Payton, if he was still alive, would say, I, I, I want to be a fighter pilot. I mean, Bo Jackson said it. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's definitely cool, but this is also the time. There's also Bo Jackson. So there's a lot of fighter pilots like, oh man, I'd like to be Bo Jackson. <laughs> right. But Bo Jackson was Bo Jackson and he wanted to be an F. True. True. He wanted to be up in the fighter jet. You know, so what, 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 from grandpa flying to John Wayne airport to Wyoming and to Denver commuter flights to your football career, to your fighter, your, or to your pilot training when you were playing footballs on Saturdays and you were in planes on Mondays to getting in that F-16, to meeting Rachel, to the tours of duties, to the missions, to your training now at Top Gun and, and Fallon and Naval Air, uh, Naval, Naval Base. Are there any regrets? Would you have changed anything in this career? Because this is a badass career. You're, you're thousands of hours in a fighter jet. You're, hundred, you're thousands of hours in a commercial jet now flying passengers around. Would you have changed any of it from when you used to watch those airplanes going to John Wayne Airport when you were a kid? You know, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. You know, and I've uh, honestly never really looked back. You know, because I figure uh, for me personally, I'm like, dude, the time you start reminiscing on the past is when you no longer think that you have anything left in your future to give. So uh, I haven't really looked in the past as much. I'm sure there's, you know, you sit there as you go through your career. At the end of the day, am I happy with everything that's happened? Yeah. Have I, you know, have I I've really left, you know, through my entire career of, of like I've always been very honest with myself and, and honest with uh, with everybody around me. You know, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I think anybody in the squadron can tell you, I don't play games. I don't try this political or whatever. You know, I'm not one of those guys. I'm like, I'm, you know, that, that's the way I've always been. And that's when I got, in, when I got into the military, I'm like, Hey, there's going to be, or like any professional corporate structure. I'm like, look, I'm going to be very direct, very to the point. Cause that's who I am. I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to try any of this, you know, political or formal alliances or whatever this case may be. I'm not going to play this game. You know, I'm going to be who I am. Uh, and that's the way I've always been. So I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy that and, and extremely fortunate and lucky to be able to do this for as long as I have. Um, so in that aspect, yes, I'm, I'm super happy and, and you know, it's still continuing, you know, I got, I got a few more years before I can retire. So all that stuff is, is great. Um, now have them in certain times where I've looked back, I'm like, yeah, when I, you know, when there was a fork in a road, I remember as a young Lieutenant, I went this way. What would happen if I would have went that way? You think about that. I mean, like a blurb, uh, like a, you know, two second thought about that. I'm like, eh, it worked out okay the way I did it. So who knows, you know, the way uh, I, I don't, I don't know. And, and you know, I'm not much into, into getting into speculative to, uh, or, uh, so you're, you're happy with what you've done. Yeah. So I'm going to end it like this. I'm an eight-year-old kid, and I watched Top Gun because my dad was coming up in those days. Well, the next one's coming out this year. The next one's coming yeah, out this 2020, year. 2020, I think. I wanted to talk about it a little bit more, but I was told not to. Nah. <laughs> I, Rachel said something along the lines that, you know, that really made her look at, man, that'd be cool to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. I have a friend named Wynn that's a trainer. She's very educated. She's a UNR grad. 
she just moved to Virginia, um, and she's going to be a Navy pilot as a female, which your wife did. Yeah. Eight-year-old kids watching Top Gun with his dad and his grandpa, and he says, I want to be a pilot. What do you say to that kid with what you've done? What is his next move? And I know H young, but yeah. what do you want to study? What do you want to accomplish in social skills? What kind what kind of person do you want to start down that track to become to become the most badass American military fighter pilot that you can? And maybe badass is the wrong term, but to me, you guys are badasses. What do you tell an eight-year, ten-year-old kid that's that's got dreams and aspirations of that? Well, you know, first of all, there's so many different paths to get there. You know, you, you could talk to, you know, several people. You know, there are some paths that make it easy, like going to an academy or something like that. But there's so many paths. Um, so the best advice I could give would be don't waver. You know, and it doesn't matter if you want to be a pilot, you want to be a welder, you want to be, I don't care what you want to do, race car driver. It's, you know, it's the guys that, the guys and gals that are uncompromising at, at achieving their goals are the ones that, that get there. Because it, 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 it might not happen as quickly as you want but if you never keep your if you never take your eye off the prize you pro you'll get there eventually you know it might take you a little longer there might be some more um, pathways uh you know my career into the military was non-standard you know it, it wasn't the, the 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 prerequisite path but i it, this was always something that i was looking to do with the you know with the commercial pilot um commercial flying initially you never know where your paths are, are going to be, you know, and how you're going to, to get there. So I'd say I always knew I wanted to do something with aviation. So that was always in my, in, in, in the back of my mind. And as you're going through life, you're going to see some opportunities that will present yourself, present themselves to you that you'll be able to say, Hey, this is a step towards that goal. Hey, here's another step into the goal. Sometimes there's going to be a lateral step before you step forward, but all those, as long as you always keep your eye on the prize, and keep that in the back of your mind. You, you'll eventually, I, I'm 100% convinced that you'll get there. You know, when, when it happens on that timeline, um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded, and, and, and you know, uh, when I was in American Airlines training, there was a guy, so on your 65th birthday, you lose your medical, can no longer fly for the airlines. It doesn't matter if you did, if you just did an Ironman, you know, you lose your medical, and that's just the way it is. There was a, a guy in my new hire class with American, 62 years old. And then, you know, he got hired and he picked a plane that he knew he could upgrade to a captain within two to three years. Well, he only had two to three years to give. And I, I'm sitting there and, you know, talking to asking him, I'm like, because he, you know, as I was hearing his story, I'm like, dude, 62, why are you leaving the job you had to go to this one? Granted, this is, you know, the coup de gras, but why are you doing this? And his, his thing was... I swore myself I would retire as a major airline captain. And dude, he, he did, you know, so that was a live goal. And I don't know, you know, we didn't go into the particulars, like if he started late or what was going on, but he, you know, I thought that was Doesn't very matter. inspiring. Yeah. It's, he's going to go wait, out. He, he said, wait. he's like, I will retire as a, as a major airline captain. And he will, That's awesome. you know, so I'm like, dude, that is, that is cool. You know, that is absolutely cool. And, and that's where I think the advice I'd give the eight to 10 year old is just that you dude never you're going to have some you're, you're going to have some roadblocks every nobody has this you know this clean and shiny and primrose path going to their goals you know well rachel from the get-go her counselors were like that's a boys club you don't that's not for yeah, you, you exactly know? she was told not to do it and look at her yeah she you know, did it exactly and you you know there's a lot of people are always going to throw in because maybe they look at you and say well i could have done that too crap you know and they, they kind of add uh um 
you know, validation to their own pitfalls or, or lack of just throwing it out there. You know what I mean? I don't know. And, and there's another saying it's, um, uh, it's not like, what was it? And I'm going to try to try not to butcher it, but there's a saying, it says, it's not that I could and others couldn't. It's that I did when others didn't. And I think that's very poignant. It's, it's that I did when others didn't. I like that. And that's it. And you did it. And that's it, you know, and, and go, you go full force. So it's, you know, ask yourself, you know, whenever you're coming to a crossroad with that eight to 10 year old, like, Hey, there's going to be a lot of stuff. Will this, is this going to help you get to your ultimate goal? The yeah. answer is yes, go for it. The answer is no, then maybe you look for something else. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. And you've done it. You did, you're a freaking American fighter pilot and you're married to one. Yeah. There's a movie there. A movie there. <laughs> Has it ever been done before? I don't know. Do you know of any? Oh, what? Husband and wife fighter pilots? Oh, absolutely. There's lots out there. Lots? Come yeah. on, bullshit. Well, I mean, as far as that. Four? I mean, four couples? Uh, there's, you know, through the entire history of aviation, yeah, there's, there's, been, there's been a few out there. There's A few. There's, there's been some. I mean, it's not, we're not the only one by any means. I can name, you know, four or five couples off the top of my head right now just in the Air Force. I'm sure there's some in the Navy. I'm sure there's uh, guys and gals in the Army that are flying helos, attack helicopters together. I mean, there's, so cool. you know, there, there are some, some very uh, tactical couples out there, you know. I love it, dude. I, I got a lot of respect for what you've done, Brian. Thank you so much for doing this four-part podcast with Brian Moore, fighter pilot turned commercial. Well, you're still a fighter pilot. You're always a fighter pilot, right? You might not be in missions, but once you're a fighter pilot, you can't ever take yeah, that I'll title. Just, I'll, just trans, I'll just trans. I'll uh, just transition to old fighter pilot. Yeah, old fighter. There's a lot of transitioning going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, there's there. a lot of there's a lot of OFP going on, man. <laughs> Please support the partners that support the podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by our friends at Whiskey Jam, Nashville, Tennessee, and our friends at Nutrient Ag Solutions. What they do for farmers all over the world is awesome. Please support both of those as well as the other partners on our page. Check out new episodes of the Foul Life TV on Outdoor Channel right now and our new sister podcast, the Foul Life Podcast, with new episodes as we speak. Brian Moore, thank you so much. You guys will hear more from this guy. I will invite him back on in the next year or so to hear about what's going on at American Airlines and what's going on with Rachel and her Finney flight, which is coming up in January of 2020, which is only a month away. Any closing words at all? I got nothing. Thanks for having me, buddy. Thank you so much for doing it. Good luck. Stay safe, please. And please, the last thing I'm going to do is put it on record that I'm still wanting to go up. Let's get it done. <laughs> I want to go that fast in a jet and learn how to breathe. I mean, Michael Waddell did it. My buddy Nick Hoffman just did it. I want to do it. I got to try. They might have more juice than I got to try. Know, I think they got more juice than me. <laughs> Tom, hit that button. Leith Lofton, what you going to do when the money's all gone? Thank you guys so much for the support of this life ain't for everybody. I'd rather be poor living off in a hole than rich as hell without a soul. Life on earth won't last that long. What you gonna do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long. What you gonna do when the money's all gone?